This morning, we are jumping back into uh, the sermon series that we just started on Daniel. Before we do that, though, um, let's start here. Have you ever sat through a movie or been reading a book or seen any kind of a performance, play, whatever, and thought to yourself partway through, where in the world is this thing going? Like, where in the world is this story headed? I mean, you understand the words that are coming out of the character's mouth. You understand that you're watching some great action scene or car chase. But for the life of you, you can't figure out how these particular parts of the story connect to the story at all. Okay? You think, where in the world is this thing going? See, there are certain elements that just make a story work, that that need to be there to make it work. And one thing that a good story needs is internal integrity. It needs to be true to itself. So whatever the beginning is, it needs to have some coherence with what's going on in the middle. And then the ending can't be this totally out of the blue, random surprise, right? It needs to be honest and true to itself, to the rest of the story. We have a tradition at our house uh, of telling tall tales. This usually happens at night when I'm trying to get kids to stay in their beds. These are ridiculous stories, but they always begin the same way. Kids... The story I'm about to tell you is entirely true, okay? And soon enough, though, we find ourselves accidentally shot in a rocket up into space, okay? Or like sleeping in a cave in the mountains with a family of leopards or whatever. Like, so I suppose I need to hear publicly apologize and confess for lying to my children. But the kicker is that no matter what situation we find ourselves in, no matter where we are in the world, no matter the danger, the trouble, the conundrum that we're in, there is one hero that always arrives and saves the day. And of course, this hero is Gum Gum. All right? Gum Gum was a white stuffed monkey that our family had long ago and that we've since lost. We don't know where he is, some trip or some move. He's been displaced. But in honor of Gum Gum, He arrives at the end of every tall tale that I ever tell to save the day and be the hero that brings us back to safety. Now, this is cute, okay? And it works for what it's supposed to do, but these are not great stories, okay? These are not well-done, wonderful, thoughtful, epic stories. The hero arrives at the climax without any connection at all to the rest of the story. Totally random, totally uh, out of the blue. It's funny, but it's a story that lacks any sort of real connection, okay? Any sort of honesty. It's random. Great stories need something that hold them together. A thread or a theme or a truth or a direction uh, for it to work. It needs to have coherence, Another thing a great story needs is to be big enough to hold all the meaning that the author wants to communicate in that story. So when William Wallace stands in front of the Scottish tribesman with his face painted blue, and he looks them all in the eye and he cries, they may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom, that line works in that story, right? Because it's epic and it's sprawling. And it's a big enough story to hold a line like that and for it to to make sense, for it to work, for it to, to, to fit in the story. But now imagine if that same line were spoken by Ben Stiller and Zoolander or by Chevy Chase in Christmas Vacation. We all know this would be ridiculous. It would be ironic. It wouldn't work. It wouldn't fit because those stories, they're not big enough to carry the kind of meaning, the life or death purpose that a line like that communicates. It wouldn't work. 
All right, so what about your story? What about your life's story right now? Is the story of your life working? Does your life work? Does your life have coherence and integrity within itself? Does it have a theme, a a direction that holds it together with honesty and, and with consistency? Or does it feel like a random collection of events and people and places that you often find yourself asking, where is this thing going anyway? I mean, where in the world is my life headed? What is this about? Is your life part of a story that's big enough to carry the meaning and the purpose and the value that you know it deserves, that you know in your bones, my my life matters? Is the story that you're in, is the story of your life big enough to carry the weight of your soul? Or does it feel like you're missing something important that should be there but isn't? And And it makes your life kind of feel too cramped, too small to really carry the weight of the meaning that it deserves. Well, we are in a sermon series in the book of Daniel. Daniel was an Israelite man. He was taken from his home in Jerusalem. He was brought to a foreign city of Babylon, away from his community, away from his place of worship, dropped into a world where he was surrounded by people who believed very different things than him and had very different values and were telling very different stories about what his life should be about. And, and the direction and the purpose and the meaning that he was supposed to have. He was required to serve a king and a nation that had just conquered and destroyed his own. And uh, Daniel would have been very tempted to believe that the story of his life and the story of all of God's people at that time was a tragedy at best, and at worst, a random collection of meaningless and chaotic circumstances that didn't fit together or have coherence or meaning at all. It would have been very easy for him to believe his life had been derailed, lost its purpose and its promise, and just wasn't working. Maybe some of us this morning can resonate with Daniel, which is why the message of Daniel 2, this chapter that we're going to look at, was crucial for Daniel to understand and believe as he fought to follow God in a foreign land. This message in Daniel 2, this is crucial for us to understand and believe as well as we fight to follow God in the land that he has placed us as well. The overwhelming theme of this chapter is that God is the author of a story, the story of the whole world, and and that he's not only going to reveal the story, going to tell us what it's all about, going to show us the true hope of the story that he's writing, but he actually invites us to be a part of it, to live in his story that gives all of our lives the coherence, the direction, and the meaning, and the hope we know they deserve. Over 30 times this chapter mentions that God makes known, or God reveals, or God gives wisdom and insight. I mean, it's just, as we read through lots of it, just hear those verbs and those words. It's, it's consistent. It's relentless. Um, verse 28 is probably the theme of the chapter. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. There is a God in control, and he reveals to his people the mystery, the secret that's going to make sense of our lives. What mystery does he reveal? It's one that brought coherence and meaning to a king's life And it's one that can bring coherence and meaning to ours as well. All right, this is a long chapter. It's like almost 50 verses or something. We're not going to read it all, but we are going to read 
kind of wide swaths of it as we go. So it might be helpful if you want to to keep a Bible open in your lap so you can kind of follow the, the thread of the story. The, the verses will be up on the screen behind me. But as we go, I want to point out three things that God reveals to us about our story, about our life's story. All right? So we're going to jump in at the beginning in verse 1. This is Daniel 2, verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and they stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. And then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever Tell your servants what the dream was, and we'll show you the interpretation. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, which Chaldeans is just another name for Babylonians, so these are like his wise men. The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your house shall be laid in ruins. Okay, big ask. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. All right, jumping down to verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, look, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands on this one. No great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it except the gods whose dwelling is not with the flesh. Interesting theological claim that they make there. Picking up in verse 12, because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out. The wise men were about to be killed. They sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, who is the executioner, the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? And then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and request, requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, who were his um, closest friends and companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, and Daniel blessed the God of heaven. All right, at this time in history, it's probably fair to say that King Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful single person on earth. Okay, he, he reigned over the Babylonian Empire, which was the superpower of the known world. Every wish was his command. Every comfort and extravagance was his right Uh, Every impulse or intuition or insight that he had became the unquestioned law of the land. Okay, he was untouchable. He was all-powerful, except he wasn't, right? I mean, all it took to take the most powerful person on the planet into to, to turn him into an anxious, sleepless, fearful, incapacitated mess was one bad dream, okay? One bad dream took down the reigning superpower of the day. We read that his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. 
And then when no answers were forthcoming his, from his wise men, he was angry and, and very furious. Okay, he's flying off the handle. The requests, they seem outrageous. This is not the picture of a person who's in control of his own life or, or, in, or is in control of his own story. This is a person who's deeply fragile. And, and what I want to suggest is that his fragility is actually a result of his great power and not sort of an odd fact about him, despite his power. What do I mean? Those of us in this world who God has given a measure of power to, okay? Now, for example, those of us who can buy pretty much everything we need for our families to survive, and can then go and even buy pretty much everything we need for them to thrive and enjoy without worrying about where the next paycheck is going to come from, we've been given power, okay? And those of us in this world who um, are in positions of leadership and influence, who, whose voice other people listen to, an example other people follow, um, maybe they even have to or else they get fired, right? They, we have a certain measure of power. Those of us who have got to choose what our career is going to be and weren't, we weren't just assigned something or got to choose where we live and, and aren't just assigned something, we have a certain measure of power. And those of us with any measure of power, it doesn't have to be the power of the uh, greatest king in the ancient world. It can just be any measure of power. We have a temptation to believe that because we have power to write parts of our story, that we can actually write a story for ourselves that has coherence and meaning and substance, that, that we can make this thing happen on our own. Um, but here's the thing. It only takes one small event, an illness, an accident, uh, a restructuring at work at the company, a bad year for the markets, one bad dream in the middle of the night to, um, to, to show us that we cannot create enough security and a firm enough foundation for our story to hold together on our own. Our lives are fragile because we have power, not despite it. Because when we're tempted to believe that we can do this thing on our own, it's exactly then that we're in trouble. We read in the New Testament, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace. He's with the humble, those who know that they're small, those who know they can't sustain the weight of their own story on their own. Our story apart from God is too fragile. And we see in Daniel 2 that our story apart from God is too small, okay? Picking up in verse 25. Arioch, our executioner, brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was also Belteshazzar, that's the Babylonian name he was given, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I've seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered to the king and said, No. No. Wise men, enchanters, magicians, astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me... This mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom I have 
more than all the other living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Before going on, just notice the humility of Daniel in that moment. I mean, he's about to solve the problem that's going to save everybody's life, all these wise men's life. And he says, no, no, this has nothing to do with me. And not only that, it's a gift from God, but it's not even a gift for me. It's a gift for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 31, here's the dream. I saw you, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was gold, the chest, the arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor, and the wind just carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Verse 36, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. I love verse 36. It's, I mean, he just did the thing that everyone said was totally impossible. You know, he told, he's not only going to interpret the dream, but he told the king what his own dream was without any hints or clues. And then Daniel treats it as if he's just like turning from page one to page two of like a Lego manual. He's like, okay, here's the, that was the dream. Now we'll do the interpretation. All right, here's the interpretation. Verse 37. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, the glory, and into whose hand he is given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these. And as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be divided, a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And the toes of the feet were partly iron, partly clay. So the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. I'm going to pause there for a minute. Now, at the beginning of this chapter, it's unclear whether Nebuchadnezzar actually knows what his own dream was about or not. You could read it either way. You could, you could say he knew what his dream was, but he just didn't want to give the wise men any hints, you know, so that they had to figure it out on their own. Or you could read it by saying, like, man, he woke up. He couldn't really remember all the details of the dream, but he just had this, like, haunting, foreboding dread. And he wanted to know what he dreamt about. But here's the thing. Either way, now we know where the dread came from. Okay, now we know, now that God has revealed through Daniel what the dream was about, we know what the foreboding and the dread and the anxiety and the fear was all about. Nebuchadnezzar's dream, I call him Neb, Neb's dream was about his life's work, his entire nation's existence being replaced and dismantled and destroyed by the other nations that would come after him. 
Babylon is the head of gold in his dream, but after Babylon will come another nation, then another nation, then another one, always something new in the works, something to replace and upend all that he will pour his life into doing. All that he will ever do will just be erased and blown away like the dust on the floor. His sense of foreboding came from the realization that the story of his own life, the life of the king of the greatest nation on earth, was too small, okay? It was too small to carry the weight of the meaning that he knew it it should have and that he knew he deserved. Leo Tolstoy was a great Russian novelist, and he actually went through a period of depression in his own life and searching in his own life, similar to Nebuchadnezzar's in this story. Afterwards, he wrote an essay called A Confession. Listen to Leo Tolstoy and what he wrote. My question, which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions, laying in the soul of every man, from the foolish child to the wisest elder. It was a question without an answer to which one cannot live, as I had found by experience. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or shall do tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Differently expressed, the question is, why should I live? Why wish for anything? Why do anything? It can be expressed like this. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy. Tolstoy saw what Nebuchadnezzar saw, and it terrified him as well. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me or my business or this institution that I've poured my life into or my family will not destroy? No matter how grand the statue I build, no matter how thoughtful or beautiful or healthy or good my contributions are to this world, is the meaning I can create and generate on my own enough for me to matter, really matter? That's a good question. Here's the problem. Uh, Spending our lives creating our own meaning, writing the story we find important, whether or not it connects to anything beyond our own lives, is exactly what our culture is encouraging us to do. In fact, almost demanding that we do. Okay, you and I, we live in a place, in a home away from home for right now, and this current home we live in is telling us that we actually have to go out, for our life to matter, we have to go out and create a meaning on our own. Okay, that's the message that we get from the world around us. In a... um, In a column last year in the New York Times, David Brooks wrote um, about how the purpose and the meaning of our lives used to be this kind of shared community project, and it has become privatized. Okay, listen to this. Over the decades, that sense of we-ness began to turn into a sense of I-ness. You can see it in today's commencement cliches. Follow your passion. March to the beat of your own drummer. Listen to your own heart. You do you. Okay, this is David Brooks. He now goes on to say, Justice Anthony Kennedy didn't invent the shift from community to autonomy, but in 1992, he articulated it more crisply than anyone else. I I find this fascinating. This was written in a legal opinion in the Supreme Court. And he writes, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, meaning in the universe, and the mystery of human life. In this sentence, which became famous as the mystery of life passage, there's no sense that we as individuals are embedded in a wider net of community. There's no acknowledgement of the parts of ourselves that we didn't choose to inherit. There's no we. 
We're all walking around with our own individual opinions and existence, searching for meaning in the universe. Each person is a self-created, choosing individual, and we have to create our own worldview anew. Okay, David Brooks gets to this point in the article, and he just goes, wow, that requires a lot of background reading, okay? If your name is Aristotle or Nietzsche, maybe you can get that done. But what about the rest of us? This is going to be tough. I mean, we're busy, like we got stuff to do. And you're telling me now I have to go out and create the concept of existence and a meaning for the universe that can help make sense in my life? He says the practical result of this, given the impossible task, is that most people wind up without any moral vocabulary. We just say, too hard, not going to get to that. With only scattered shards of value, with no firm foundation for when time gets t- times get tough. Our world is telling us the only way to get a story big enough to carry our lives and our families and our souls through this world is to define one's own concept of existence. Not only does that sound exhausting on every level, but the mystery that God reveals through Daniel in chapter 2 says no matter what we can build, even if it's a head of gold, even if it's a a statue that people look to for centuries, um, the, the fame, the riches, the influence it's still not big enough. It all ends in the end. It all falls apart. It will all return to the dust that it started as. It turns out we need a bigger story than we can create on our own. We need something more firm, more secure, more eternal. We don't need a statue built to our own name. We need a rock that becomes a mountain built to God's name. All right? Last couple of verses we're going to look at. Picking up in 44 again. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw, there is a stone that was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. The whole movement and direction of history is heading towards this conclusion, okay? Uh, Towards this climax, the arrival of Jesus and his kingdom of grace and love will be the only story that matters in the end. It'll be the only institution that lasts past all the others, the only government that never falls. And being included in this family This kingdom, by his grace, is a story big enough and long enough, eternal enough, to bring coherence and to bring meaning to our own lives. See, all the threads of our lives that we can't hold together on our own, you know, like all the people that we can't love perfectly, all the, jo- all the work that we end up doing that sometimes feels amazing and sometimes just feels like drudgery, all the places that we've been, all the threads of our story that we don't have the power to control, he does. He does. In Daniel, we read the iron and the, and, and the clay, they were mixed together. They will not hold together. But in the New Testament, in Colossians 1, we read this. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. See, he began the story, and that's why it has coherence throughout your whole life and through all of history. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, 
invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him, sorry, through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Every thread in your life, every detail, every tragedy, every glory, everything that, all the like seemingly random series of connections and circumstances, they're not random. They have a coherence. They have an integrity because in Christ, he can hold them all together. Every detail of your life will one day make sense in Christ, but not apart from him. Every glory and disaster in your life will hold together in Christ, but not apart from him. Everything about your life from the most mundane task to those singularly epic moments that you'll look back on will matter and will work together for God's glory in Christ, but not apart from him. This is the mystery that God reveals to Daniel and to Nebuchadnezzar and to us, that only Christ the rock His arrival, he is a rock, and his arrival begins the growth of a mountain that will take over the earth, and the whole story will be about him. Only Christ the rock is a foundation firm enough and big enough and gracious enough to secure the hope and the meaning we know our lives should have. Only he is secure enough to carry the weight of our souls into eternity. The dream is certain. Its interpretation is true. It's a dream come true. Uh, At the very center of this chapter is a song of worship that Daniel prays. Let's close by making Daniel's prayer our prayer this morning. I'll just read these verses. Would you pray with me? Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. God reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give you thanks, and I give you praise. Amen.